there are two um, weird things, uh, two questions that come to mind for me, one in each of these passages. And, and I want to kind of lay out my questions, and then we'll kind of go from there. My, my first question is about the shepherds. And here's what I wonder about the shepherds. Where do they go after they meet Jesus? The shepherds have an amazing night, right? The shepherds are with their flocks, they're in the fields, an angel shows up, says, hey, Messiah has been born, huge news for them. Uh, Then there's like a whole bunch of angels and they sing and they're like, wow, that was a great concert, let's go see the Messiah. They go into town, they find just as promised and they tell everybody and they praise God and they go home. And then what? It seems weird to me that we don't see the shepherds again later in the story. Right? I mean, it seems weird to me that 30 years later when Jesus begins His ministry, there's not this core group of shepherds and their families who've been waiting all this time or like following Him around. Like maybe they moved to Nazareth to be closer to Him. I mean, angels told them that this baby was the Messiah. And they were like, that is awesome. We are so excited. Now let's get back to work. Right? So my first question is, what happens with the shepherds? Here's my second question, and this is from the Gospel of Mark. Um, How many times did it take for Jesus to heal this man of his blindness? How many tries did it take? Two. It took him two. This is unusual. Jesus has a really good track record of miracles, and in every other instance, including other situations where he's healing blind people, he does it in one go. So my question is, why does it take him two tries? Like, is this a particularly stubborn blindness? Why can't Jesus just, you know, heal this guy like He heals everybody else? So, I want to come back to both of those questions. I think they're going to be really, really important for us. Um, But before we do that, let's get some good news. The good news is the disciples, who are generally just a disaster, um, finally got one right tonight, right? The disciples are hanging out with Jesus, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they say, well, everyone else says you're just a, a prophet or, you know, one of these great leaders come back to life. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And they say, ah, you're the Messiah. This is huge, okay? This is huge. This is not a given. It's not an assumption that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, there are other people in the Bible who've done more impressive things than Jesus, like Moses part of the Red Sea and did those 10 plagues and manna from heaven every day. And I mean, Moses was pretty amazing. Jesus hasn't done the stuff that Moses did yet. There are a lot of important leaders in the, in the Bible and outside of the Bible. We have prophets and priests, things that are all anointed. Messiah means anointed one. But, but Peter says, ah, I think that you are more than just a prophet or a priest or a king. You are the prophet, the priest, the king. You're the one we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for you since Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3? My contention is that Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the most important verse in the Old Testament. It's in the conversation where God's talking to the serpent, and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike His heel. And I think from that moment on in the whole Old Testament, we are looking for someone who's going to strike the head of the serpent, right? We're looking for a serpent-crushing kind of figure. We thought maybe it would be the seed of the woman. Maybe it would be Cain. didn't work out with Cain. We thought maybe it's going to be Noah or Abraham or or Joseph, or Moses, or Elijah, or David, and none of those guys worked out. But, but Peter says, ah, Jesus, I think you're the one. I think you're the one we've been waiting for all these years. You are the Messiah. 
This is the exact middle of the Gospel of Mark. It is the turning point of the Gospel. And, and there is something great that happens. I mean, they get who Jesus is. Except they really don't. Because when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, Jesus is like, okay, cool, shut up. Right? He says it nicer than that. But he like sternly rebukes him. Right? He sternly warns him not to say anything. Now, I, I think Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter hasn't got the whole picture yet, right? Peter's just seeing part of the story. And, and I think this is the key uh, when it comes to understanding that second question, that question about um, why it takes two tries to heal this guy. Jesus is using this man as a metaphor to talk about um, our spiritual vision. And he's saying, ah, you might get some of my story. You might get that I'm Messiah, but there's more still for you to get. And until you get the whole picture, you're not yet ready to be out there telling my story. Okay, um, there's, a, there's an old video um, that uh, I'm going to show you guys tonight. Some of you have maybe seen this before or think you've seen it before. Uh, this is a math problem, and I know it's like, kind of late on Christmas Eve, and math is not what you want to do. But it's just counting, okay? And I believe in you that you can do this. Um, so your assignment is going to be to count the number of times that the people wearing white t-shirts pass the ball, okay? To count the number of times the people wearing white t-shirts pass the ball. And we're going to play this little video for you. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. Okay, how many times? 16. Okay, good job. 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. Learn more about this illusion and the original. Great. Okay. A um, little audience participation. Raise your hand if you saw the gorilla the first time. Okay. Well done. Um, raise your hand if you did not see the gorilla the first time. Oh, lots of us. Okay. All right. Raise your hand if you noticed the curtain changing color. Wow. Observant. I did not see that, and I'd seen the gorilla video before. Raise your hand if you noticed the one person in black leaving the game. Okay. Some of you guys are amazing. I love it. Um, uh, here's, here's, there's so much going on with that video. We could talk about it for a very long time. Um, but here's, I think, the simple concept, right? That when you are hyper-focused on one detail, it's 
often easy to miss the big picture, and I mean big things like people in gorilla costumes walking through, waving their arms and beating their chest, right? Uh, this is what's happening, I think, in the story in the Gospel of Mark. Um, the, the disciples have been healed a little bit of their spiritual blindness, right? I mean, Jesus has worked really hard over the point, over the course of the gospel, over the course of his ministry to help them realize, and they finally get that he is Messiah, right? But it's like the first healing of the blind man, right? They see people, but it's like trees walking, and they're not able to yet fully see everything that's happening with Jesus. Um, I think part of the message of the story is um, it's hard to heal blindness, but it's really hard to heal spiritual blindness, even for Jesus. Even for Jesus, it's hard to heal spiritual blindness, right? It's what He's been doing the whole story of the gospel, and He gets to the middle of Mark, and He's still not done, right? They still don't get it yet. But they, they, the disciples, not unlike the shepherds, I think, in the gospel of Luke, they see that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't know what that means for them yet. And they don't understand how it affects their life and their living. It's just like a distant truth. And I think this is the challenge for us. We often, as um, people trying to be faithful, trying to be good followers of Jesus, we recognize who He is. Um, but we struggle to see the whole picture. We know other people are worthy of compassion, but we struggle to hear their voices. We know temporal things are temporary, but we struggle to see the things that are eternal. We know we should value substance over symbols, but we struggle to remember which is which. So Jesus says, do you have ears but cannot hear? Do you have eyes but cannot see? And do you not remember? It's like our eyes are partially open, and there's more yet for us to learn about who Messiah is. So I've been reading this book. Um, I actually started reading this book in October. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. It's by a guy named Brother Lawrence. It's 60 pages long. I started reading this book in October, okay? It's 60 pages long. So uh, I'm going kind of slow, and there's, there's a little bit, a little bit of rereading, okay? Um, but it's really been impactful for me. And I, I shared this a, a while ago, but the short version of this book is um, Brother Lawrence is a monk who lives... Um, Oh gosh, I've forgotten. I think in the 1600s, and uh, he essentially um, becomes part of a monastic order and spends the rest of his life either cooking in a kitchen, which he doesn't particularly enjoy, or um, when his physical ailments from his war fighting days become too bad uh, and he can't stand anymore, he spends the rest of his days making sandals for the brothers. Uh, and in the midst of this like menial labor. Brother Lawrence has these incredible um, moments of clarity where he encounters and experiences God. He talks about being consumed by the love of God all the time, so that is like forefront of his mind when he's making sandals and cooking dinner, and even when he's in pain and standing, all of it um, becomes part of this practice of the presence of God for him. So I've been reading this book, and I keep reading it and reading it, and I'm, um, I'm a little bit slow. But there are times where I feel like I'm starting to get it. There are times where I feel like I'm starting uh, to maybe see not just who Messiah is, but what He means for me. 
So Thursday, uh, uh, no, yesterday, yesterday, I was here uh, at church um, making some gifts for my family. It was 10.30, and I was printing color copies on the copier and um, trying to assemble this gift. And I knew that at 11 o'clock, Duke had its bowl game. Duke was playing Troy, and I really wanted to watch that game. I've been excited about it for, for weeks. Um, and at 10.45, I wasn't done. And at 10.55, I wasn't done. And at 11.05 and 11.15 and 11.20, I wasn't done. Finally, 11.24, I finished making these gifts. And I knew I'd missed the kickoff in most of the first half, first quarter. And so I walked quickly to my car and I started driving home. Now, I live 60 seconds from the church and I was going really fast, okay? Uh, and in that 60 seconds, um, I felt like the Holy Spirit, maybe not quite audibly, but almost audibly, spoke to me. And He said, Jim, if you really believed what you say you believe, if you really believed that the Messiah, Jesus, is with you all the time, it would mean that at this very moment, as you are driving a little too fast down residential streets, um, Jesus is sitting in the chair next to you. And you're thinking, I don't want to miss a moment of my football game. When you have infinite moments with, like, the Messiah who's right here. Jesus keeps working on this with me. Um, he keeps reminding me, oh, yeah, you know, all those sins that you most enjoy, they're kind of laughable if you take seriously the fact that I'm around all the time. I really love to argue with my kids about putting on coats when it's cold outside. And uh, I keep remembering, you know, Jesus really um, probably would like me to remember that He conquered sin and death. I don't have to worry too much about the coats, right? Um, uh, there are so many times where I think about all the good things in my life that I enjoy, and I forget that all of them bring me joy because they point me somehow to Christ. There are these moments, though, where I get enough clarity that I say, oh my gosh, it's not just that Jesus is Messiah, it's that He's Messiah for me right now that in this moment I am with Him and working with Him, and I get to enjoy all that He has to offer. And I get these, these beautiful moments of clarity. And then they're gone, right? And then I'm back to seeing people as trees, and I'm, I'm, I'm back to being Macbeth watching Burnhamwood on its way to Dunsandane, and I, 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 I struggle, right? It's really hard. I, I think we all do. I think we all struggle to say, hey, I don't want Jesus as Messiah to be just a distant truth. I want it to be something that's relevant for me today. So here we are tonight in church, big church night, uh, and we get to light candles in a few minutes, and we get to do all this special stuff for Christmas Eve. And tonight be, might be one of those nights where it's easier to remember that Jesus the Messiah is a relevant truth to me today. Tomorrow we go home and we open presents. And that might be something that draws us closer to Jesus, or might be a distraction from Jesus, or maybe a little bit of both. And then Tuesday happens, and Wednesday, and we go about our normal week, and it becomes so easy just to kind of forget, right? Just to kind of forget that Jesus wants to be part of my life, connected to my regular living. It's not that we struggle with a lack of faith. It's like we have a lack of clarity. It's like we can't see what God is doing. When I was a kid, my parents told me that carrots were good for your eyes. Anybody's parents ever told you that carrots are good for your eyes? Okay, fantastic. Actually, turns out they're right. 
Turns out that like the beta carotene in carrots, your body turns into vitamin A, and that actually is good for your eyes and helps your, with your long-term vision. Um, by the way, it also helps with acne. That's just free. I don't know what to do with it, but there you go. thought you might want to know. Um, so carrots are good for your physical eyes. I think, however, there's another food that has some value for our spiritual eyes. There's another food that has some value in helping open our eyes to the presence of Christ amongst us. And that's bread. I love bread. Bread is my favorite food group. And I've always thought, you know, if I could just only have one thing, I could, I could lose vegetables and fruit. I could probably lose hamburgers. I could maybe lose cookies, but bread I cannot live without. Um, but bread keeps showing up in the Bible in really interesting ways. Remember when Jesus and the uh, two disciples are on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection, and uh, they don't recognize Him, and then they get to the home, and they sit down, and they break bread, and in the breaking of the bread, their eyes are open, and they see Jesus. It's, it's um, bread and a couple fish that Jesus breaks to feed the 5,000 Jews and the 4,000 Gentiles uh, to open their eyes up and the disciples' eyes up to who He is and what He's doing. It's those bread miracles that Jesus points out when He is trying to get the disciples to recognize that He's Messiah. We even have places in Scripture um, where people say that um, eating brightens the eyes. I really like that. It brightens the eyes. It gives us better vision, lets us see the way things are supposed to be. There's something about um, this process of something as simple and ordinary as bread that helps us to recognize that what Jesus wants is to be part of our ordinary lives, that what Jesus wants is to be part of the regular living and not just the high holy moments, that it's not just on Christmas and Easter and those crises in our lives where Jesus wants to show up. He wants to be present at the dinner table and in our rooms and in our offices and on the soccer pitch and in the pool and in the classroom. Jesus just wants to be around us all the time. In fact, He is around us all the time if we just have eyes to see Him. So, uh, we want to do something tonight. Um, we, we have a, a church member who spent I don't know how many hours um, baking a loaf of bread for like every family in our church. We have like 300 loaves of bread. It's a lot of bread. Uh, and so, when you leave tonight, um, we want to give you this gift. We want to ask you to take a loaf of bread as your family, or maybe take a couple loaves of bread uh, for your family. Uh, they're in the narthex. Um, but here's your assignment. I want you to take that bread, and I want you to go home. I don't care if it's tonight or tomorrow. I want you to sit around a table. A family could be just you, or it might be you and your spouse, or you and your kids, or whatever. Sit around a table. I want you to break that bread. And in the breaking of the bread, simply say, Jesus, I want you here in these ordinary spaces of my life. I want you to open my eyes up uh, to you in my midst and what you're doing in my regular life. Ooh, hey, uh, this is fun. Um, I had another plan originally. I'm super excited about the bread. It's so cool. Um, but originally, um, we we're going to give you sourdough starters. You might know what a sourdough starter is. I had never heard of this before. This is like a magic spell, okay? So sourdough, it's not really magic. You take like some yeast and some bacteria and you put it in a jar and you like grow it in your fridge for a while. Then you can take some out and use it to start sourdough bread. And you can just keep in it like perpetuates and it, you can just keep doing it over and over again. So I was going to have a sourdough starter for every person in the church. And then someone said, hey, Jim, you know that those have like live bacteria in them, Right. So people are going to get really, really sick. And I was like, well, probably not many people. Um, but the staff thought that was a bad idea. So 
we didn't, we're not giving you bacteria tonight. But then I thought, oh, wait a minute. This is part of the idea, right? Because what Jesus offers us is our daily bread. He doesn't say, hey, I want to take away the worry of where everything's going to come from for the rest of your life. He says, I want you to trust me today and then trust me again tomorrow and then trust me again the day after that. So we're going to get you started, right? We're going to get you started with a loaf of bread and that you can begin breaking and inviting Christ into your ordinary life. But then uh, the next day it's on you to say, hey, I'm going to keep making space for Jesus. I'm going to keep asking Christ to open my eyes, see Him in my everyday life, and then to see other people as Christ sees them, and then to see my time as Christ sees my time, then to see my stuff as Christ sees my stuff. And I'm going to do it every day. And here's the key idea. The key idea is just like um, we can't capture Christmas in a bottle, so too we can't really capture those moments of God. And we have to just be captured by them, right? We have to just be present for them. They open our eyes and let us see, even if just for a moment, a glimpse of who God really is. Ann Voskamp says it like this, I don't want a Christmas you can buy. I don't want a Christmas you can make. What I want is a Christmas you can hold, a Christmas that holds me, remakes me, revives me. I want a Christmas that whispers Jesus. May we be a people this Christmas who see the fullness of Messiah in the most mundane of places, whose Vision is made clear in the breaking of our daily bread and the whispering of the name of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen.